0: Have you ever experienced a moment that was so traumatic that it unraveled everything that you knew about yourself? Devastation of what you thought you knew about the world, of your own character, even what you thought you believed in. There's two ways things can go from a moment like that. One is a pretty dark path that can sometimes be so bad it may even lead you to cause a similar moment for yourself and for others. The other pathway is one of healing and working towards a better way of being, reshaping your worldview and even your views about your purpose in life. My guest this week has been through all of what I've just described. Dean Yates was the Bureau Chief of the Reuters News Agency in Baghdad during the worst of the Iraq War. On July 12, 2007, Dean experienced a moment that changed his life irrevocably, something that dragged him through the blackest heart of humanity, but with a lot of work and a lot of support, he got about the business of getting better, and now he works as a mental health advocate, committing his time to helping organisations with mental health strategy and training. Today, Dean Yates shares the raw and gritty account of his seven-year odyssey to find the best ways to treat his PTSD, how to deal with moral injury and how to reconnect with his family. Dean has written a book all about his experience, Lion in the Sand is the name of the book and I hope this chat today will give you a bit of a window into what acceptance and action and commitment to getting better can do for you even when faced with some of the most overwhelming and dangerous situations imaginable. And we'll do all that after this break.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: A better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
3: When someone's sense of of what's right has been violated strongly enough, they can suffer what's called a moral injury. It's it's similar to PTSD, has a lot of the similar symptoms uh, and similar psychological ramifications as well. I was the bureau chief for... Reuters in Baghdad in 2007 when two of my staff were killed in, a, uh, in an attack by a US gunship that was made famous when Julian Assange released footage of this where about a dozen people were killed, in, including my photographer and a driver. And he called, that, he called that tape collateral murder. For me, the moral injury was that I failed to protect my staff. And then when that tape came out, I failed to speak up and tell the story of what happened on that day.
0: That is author and mental health advocate, Dean Yates. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. Thanks for being here. This is better than yesterday. Making it better since twenty thirteen. Convers- I've really got to write a tagline for this show. Having conversations to make things better since twenty thirteen. I've really got to figure something out. Uh, yeah, we we have we chat with people here. We chat with people, and every conversation leaves you feeling better than you did. That's it. That's all we do. been doing it for years now, a decade. Boy, oh boy. Uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we're here. Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays with you. And um, I'm really glad you were a part of it. Thank you so much for reaching out and saying, hey, send Osher email at gmail.com is uh, my email address. Oh, I should introduce myself. If this is your first time listening, hello. Uh, I'm Osher Ginsburg. Uh, I'm grateful you're here. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm currently as. Uh, apartment building sauna adventurer, I like metrics, all right? Metrics are fun. I have a heart rate monitor. I'd like to know how far I've ridden on my bicycle. And I bought a temperature gauge off the internet so I could see how hot the sauna is getting. And I bought um, hourglass timers so I can see how long I'm in there for. <laughs> because, hey, you know, when you're not with your family, which I'm not at the moment, I'm away from my family right now, it's important to be busy for me. And um, so yeah, I'm in Melbourne. I'm in Melbourne making some TV right now. And uh I've I've chose a building to live in specifically away from any hubbub. And specifically because there's a gym and a sauna here. And uh which I really I'm really grateful for because um yeah, I dropped my, my wife and we've got two kids and the youngest one's still a toddler. The other one's a grown teenager and she's out traveling the world at the moment. But the little one uh, and his mum, my wife, came to visit me for a couple of days and uh, it was awesome to have them around. And then I dropped them to the airport yesterday and my heart just went like, fuck. So I missed them so much and I know, I know what I need to do. It's like, okay, all right, well, before you go and do something dumb, just get upstairs and lift some heavy shit, and that's what I did. And then I sat in a very, very, very hot wooden room with some steam in it for ages, and then I felt better because I know enough that if I start to get those kind of thoughts and feelings and I don't get that energy out of my body or channel it to something that, in my experience, sometimes that energy can affect my life and those around me in not positive ways. So yeah, that's what I did yesterday. And um, I'm grateful that you're listening to this. Well, I don't even know, I wasn't planning to say that, but I did. But anyway, that's what I'm doing. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. Also, thank you very much for everyone that got in touch. As I said, you can email me, Send email at gmail.com. I always love to see where you're listening. It's lovely to see the pictures of what you're looking at when you're listening to this show. And it's good. I, I get to see pictures of dog walks and I get to see pictures of um, work from home setups and people, you know, doing the laundry and cleaning their yard and people listening while their kids nap in the car and stuff like that. It's super cool. Because it's nice to be a part of, you know, what you're doing. And uh, knowing the actual connection between me sitting here in this, you know, spare room and you doing what you're doing right now, it's nice to put a, a connection to that. Oh, before I get to Dean, just a quick question. If if this podcast is something that does bring you value, if you listen to to it before and you think that's something that, you know, oh yeah, I've got value out of that. And that's a podcast that's brought me something that otherwise I couldn't get. And you feel like you want to repay that. Just throw a vote my way, tvweeklogies.com.au. I'll put the link in the show notes. I've been nominated for a gold Logie, which is a big fucking deal. It's an award, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's my industry. And why am I asking you for a vote? I'm not voting, asking you for a vote because I want to win a Logie, but if I have a Logie in my hands, particularly a golden one, the opportunity to have these kind of conversations on a much grander scale is... um much easier grasp and uh, I started this show because I want to have I didn't have these common conversations weren't in the public space and that's why I created this podcast in 2013 Uh, there's a lot more of these conversations out there at the moment which I'm grateful for but I would like to you know obviously build and help more people and get these kind of conversations to as many ears as I can so if that statue is in my hand it would make that a little easier and certainly You know, give the chance to other people who have otherwise no idea this podcast even exists, give them a chance to maybe get some benefit out of it. So that's why I'm asking. So there you go. If you can, please do throw a vote my way, tvweeklogies.com.au. So to my guest, Dean Yates. Dean Yates is an extraordinary person and a man who for Years was just the ideal war zone correspondent. You know, what you think when you think of someone who's a reporter working in a war zone, someone who's courageous, someone who's dedicated, someone who operates with a huge amount of compassion and really strong, strong kind of ethics. And he spent years facing just the worst moments imaginable, like the Bali bombings, the Boxing Day tsunami. He, you know, just waded through the most grim moments of humanity to tell the story and honour the victims and, you know, help shed light on the situations that had brought so much pain and tragedy to so many. But there was one moment that finally undid him, and it was in July in 2007 when he was working as the uh, bureau chief at the Reuters news agency in Iraq and Baghdad, and during the peak of, like, the really most awful bits of the Iraq war, and two of his staff members were, just brutally gunned down by an American helicopter in Iraq. They were photographers. It was not good. What followed was everything just kind of unravelled for Dean. Everything he thought he knew about himself. Uh, he clearly was being affected by PTSD, and it was compounded by a moral wound, which he describes as we in this conversation. And then just the devastation of what he thought he knew about the world and then what he thought he knew about his own character and his own beliefs all just came smashing into pieces and it left him mostly inoperable. And it took him quite a while to get better. They included years of treatment, a few stints inside a psychiatric facility. But Dean did get better, and he's doing a lot better, and you'll hear it in his voice. He sounds a whole lot better. And it's really important to know that you can treat these kind of issues. When I got really sick, I didn't know that it could ever be better or that people who had been in my situation ever got better. I thought that's what it would be for the rest of my life. So I started talking about what it was to be better because I needed to hear, when I was sick, I needed to hear that people could get better and I wanted to give that to other people. And so in listening to this, I hope you can hear that, you know, you'll hear him describe how bad it got how sick he got and you'll hear the sound of his voice and you can hear quite clearly that he is a lot better and he's having a great life and these things are possible and treatment does exist and your life doesn't have to be horrible every day but in my experience you really have to want to get better and you've really got to be doing whatever it takes to get there and dean clearly talks about that and it's pretty good we do discuss a few pretty heavy things in this chat moral injury ptsd we describe some pretty reprehensible acts of violence, and uh, we speak about uh, suicide and suicidality. So if those things aren't for you today, fine. That's cool. There's plenty of other episodes to listen to. I hope you'll find one. Dean's book is called "Line in the Sand. You can get it where you get your books. It's a brilliant read. Enjoy this conversation with Dean Yates. Dean, thank you so much for joining me. We are 56 minutes after i told you i'd be here it's all right don't worry about it i'll show it happens do you do you want to know you you want to know why go for it i uh so i had to see my doctor because he may there's some goo in my throat and it's it's been a week and i'm like all right i should probably go i should probably go and um i sit down and we start having chats and he's he takes my blood pressure and some of the medication I'm on makes my blood pressure a bit high. And he goes, okay, i well, will just take you through some relaxations. See if we can't get that down a bit. And next thing I know he, he hypnotized me and I'm sure you've had this one without put your arm in the air and all that bizzo and like, not like cluck like a chicken, Peter Power stuff, but like, you know, in a clinical sense, it was in a medical mm. clinic. I've had, you know, I've worked with GPs and psychologists who've done it before. And it's been a long time since I've done that sort of thing. And you yeah, look, if people have jumped on stage at Twin Towns uh, and clucked like a chicken, then afterwards when they are interviewed going, I don't know why I clucked like a chicken. I knew I was doing it. Like the whole time it was happening, like Dean's waiting. Dean's waiting on a call. Dean's waiting on a call. And I'm just feeling my blood my blood pressure just plummet and my heart rate drop. And I, <laughs> so it was interesting because I'm like trying to be as relaxed as I possibly can be, but at all the same time, we're really aware that I come and get you, but at the same time, we're going, Jimmy, interesting to talk
3: to you about this. <laughs> Does hypnotization, I have never done hypnotization. Oh. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff, sweat lodges, EMDR, oh. meds, psych wards, you name it, I've done most of it. Hypnotization, no. Hypnotizing is, um,
0: how do I put this? It's, it's kind of like a, a super-powered mindfulness hack. Mm. On, and it turns on, in the, in the same way that a polyvagal breath can turn on your relaxation response, right? It's kind of hacking okay. that kind of, he was doing things where he was kind of tugging my arm in a particular way and getting my, just taking advantage of some of the tension response. And then relaxation parts of like holding an arm in the air and then letting it go, and using that as a trigger point. Very fascinating stuff. And I think he was just doing this part to prove a point. And at one point, he says, "Okay, in a minute, you're going to stand up and you're going to stretch, but you won't be able to move your right arm." And in my head, I'm like, "Oh, fuck you, pal!" <laughs> sure enough, <I'm> like, okay, <laughs> all right. That's really interesting. Like, and and you know, I mean, look, I'm on meds, and um. Th- I have to pee all the time because of all the water I have to drink because how thirsty they make me, but... I'll try everything, and if there's evidence behind it, and the evidence around hypnosis and and certainly that kind of clinical hypnosis stuff is really good, and I've had great success with it before, and I, that's just the first time in ages I've had a check because I just haven't. I guess I've been in so I've been in so much trouble in my life. Like I haven't had time. i like okay, I appreciate that you're doing that over there, but I'm over here on antipsychotics. So good luck, but they're not going to touch
3: sides. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, yeah. I know all about I know all about the <laughs> yeah. trouble you've been in. You're holding so up. I've my, read your book. You're holding up my book. That's uh, very uh, you, mate. you know, and and the reason I came across your book was, and this is probably a few years ago now, was that uh, I was trying to find books written by men, yeah, memoirs written by men who'd been through mental health struggles. And frankly, there's not a lot out there. Not enough. And someone I don't I don't know who recommended I I buy this or I I probably found it by doing an internet search. Yeah, right. You know, men memoirs, mental health. And I just thought it was a fantastic book. Show, I just thought M. Your honesty, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honesty, your vulnerability, and the fact Audrey gets a voice at the end. I just thought that was fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah, really, really great stuff. So uh, <laughs> thanks. Man. I know you're supposed to be interviewing me. No, but no, no, no. But it's a big part. I'm of... an old journo, so well done. No,
0: it's okay, Dave, because it's a big part of it, isn't that? You can't be what you can't see. And I started this podcast because the kind of conversations I was hearing in recovery, the kind of conversations which identified where people were, what they had done and where they were now. So that people who were in that tough spot could hear oh, there's, mm-hmm. there's something else other than this. Cause in those tough spots, our brains do this thing that, and this is how people get into a lot of trouble. And I very nearly got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I was lucky to get out of it. Our brains go, and this is how it's going to be forever. And yeah. that's not real. It's a survival thing that our brain does. And it's important to hear those stories. And, so that's why I started this show and, and that's why I wrote that book because, yeah, if you don't know that there's another thing to do besides the thing your brain is screaming at you to do mm. 20 times a
3: day, you might go, well, that's the only idea of God."
0: So it's what I'm going to go and, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. No.
3: And, and I think men of our generation have got to get a message out there to men. Oh, uh, yeah. That you've got to get help. And and you you gotta be open about it. You you gotta to talk to your partners about it. I mean our, our natural response is to just is to just isolate ourselves and say nothing. Uh yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you know, I don't know you you do speak about this and that C- culturally in um there's not many communities around the world where culturally uh it's okay or has been okay Mm. for a a person to hold on to their admired masculinity (laughs) and their ability to go, yeah, I'm not quite thinking straight. Give me a minute at Mm. the same time. And it's not often that, you know, it's starting to happen. I think it's starting to happen more and more. And I think it's happened for a long time but people just never really spoke about it because of how much Mm. stigma is around it. And to be honest, and I'm, you know, as you've read, but I'll say it out loud, it was the self-stigma that stopped me. Um, getting yeah. and taking, I was off at med seven years before I started taking him. I wasted nearly a decade, you know, and got way sicker, yep. way further down the fucking hole yep. than I did, had to go. I didn't have to be, get that sick.
3: Oh, yeah. My first admission to the psych ward, I'm actually telling the nurses, I don't want to take Valium because that would be a sign of weakness. <laughs> and I'm in a psych ward. Amazing. Amazing. So your,
0: your <laughs> former gig You work in the mental health space now, which I'm very happy to, you know, Mm. talk, you know, very happy to know. And you work in, you know, delivering programs of mental health, fitness and things like this and resilience and stuff and looking after yourself, particularly... How to be a journalist and look after yourself. Yes, uh, which is bloody important. That's what you do now. But previously, you were the um, head of mental health and uh, and well being strategy at Reuters. This is nearly twenty nearly twenty years ago.
3: Well, I was actually I was actually the head of mental health at Reuters. That was the last job I had with Reuters. I was there for twenty six years. Most of it, I was a journalist, bureau chief, senior editor. Most of it overseas. All right.
0: So low stakes environments and reporting on shit that's like pretty much benign. Yeah, Bali <laughs>
3: bombings, Boxing Day tsunami, the Iraq war. I covered earthquakes that killed a thousand people that no one would even remember. Far out, man. And you know, you'd speak to
0: journalism students now, and like I read the news on. I, I have to be careful about it because I had a problem with it. I read the news now at a, in one sitting in the day, and that's it. Journalism is kind of like, kind of like a job a little like a first responder in that we're paying you to be on the front line, to deal with the really grim stuff that we as a community um, know that we'll get damaged by if we hit it every single day, but we'd still need to know about it. Now I've said this before, you know, I said, I did a conference with a bunch of ambulance drivers and I said, and there's, cause I knew this cause my, my, both my parents were doctors, right? First responding, uh, be it a fire police or, or, um, ambulance, like, Not getting PTSD is a part of your job description. Like you have to actively try to not get PTSD. Um, But for forever, that is not anywhere near the training or within the debriefing. With journalism, fucking forget about it. Like military people get rotated out of war zones. Journalists just stay. And I've had people on the show who have, at times, been fucking broken by it. Like, Mm. do people just, like, gallop into it wanting to be, you know, Hunter S and Grenada? Or, like, do people have an idea that they might get damaged by this job?
3: I think, look, if you go back to when I started out, so we're talking 30 years ago, in my case, I wanted to bear witness to history. I, I decided to become a journalist after I climbed the Berlin Wall. Uh, so you go back Fair. to that era, right? <laughs> that, was pretty signif- that was a pretty significant moment Did in history. Did you high five Hasselhoff? Thought, <laughs> I didn't see him there. He was there. But, <laughs> right. Okay. I missed him. And so for me, it was all about wanting to witness history, try to interpret what was happening in the world, make sense of events. Yeah. And, and it was that adventure. And, and, I was also inspired by people like Neil Davis, who was a legendary Tasmanian war cameraman who covered the Vietnam War. But some journalists get into it because they 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 have this great sense of justice. And they want to they want to expose the injustices in the world. Mm. And so they also expose themselves to great risk, yeah. be it from the suffering of the stories. They cover the people that they cover, or the risk that they incur mm. from those people who don't want them to do those stories. But and you're absolutely right, Osha. The journalists are first responders in in many respects, and it's only it's only relatively recently that the industry has realised that <laughs> that there is a mental toll on the work that journalists do. Mm. Uh, it's only been 20 years since the first research was actually published on. on on how war correspondents are at risk of developing PTSD, only 20 years. And it's only now that that media organisations are starting to understand that journalists who work with distressing material in their newsrooms, and, and these are often young journalists monitoring social media, taking footage from the war in Ukraine, that they are at risk as well, having to take all this material in, then work it, edit it, turn it into a package. Their brain doesn't doesn't distinguish between whether they are in the field or out or or in their comfortable newsroom. It's trauma. Oh, my God.
0: Have you seen that? You probably have. There's a supercut of uh, a war correspondent's first day in the Ukraine, and she's there in the flak jacket with her helmet and everything, and it's about just two straight minutes of her just flinching at explosion sounds. And I think the cameraman put it together, and it's an unbelievable document essentially of well, in six months, she'll be standing there like a producer, not caring, but
3: is that a good thing you know no and and look there's a i I get upset because media organizations are not looking after the mental health of their stuff, whether they're the correspondents they're sending to Ukraine or whether these are young journalists who are editing distressing material and it's not just and it's not just the wars i've had young journalists reach out to me and say i'm getting distressed editing footage of the natural disasters happening in australia the flooding for example (laughs) telling me they're having nightmares about editing this stuff they don't understand why they are upset by it but they know it's affecting them yeah and
0: and the idea that um you know we put handrails on on uh on balconies at the workplace, the the mezzanine is not just a floor. There's a, there's a wall or a railing there, you know, there's a, there's a cutoff switch on the kettle, you know, there's a non-slip thing on the stairwell. We want to make sure that people are physically safe at their work, but some jobs and, you know, I would argue that journalism is getting more dangerous because we, 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 the market pressure is for more and more immersive Immersive reporting
3: and and more intense footage. I, I actually, look, I actually think it's I think it's harder today than at any time in history to be a journalist because it's not just what we've just been talking about yeah. the trauma, the exposure, it's the online abuse, oh the God. online violence that occurs, and then it's that the precariousness of the industry, the sheer nature of of how easy it is for journalists to just lose their jobs. And, and that 24-7 hyper-connected, switched-on world, it's uh, it's it's really tough. To have, I
0: mean, just look, both Lee Sales and Stan Grant had to go, you know what, I can't mm. keep going, can't keep going. Like, these are, like, I don't care yeah. what you think. Like, these are two people who are, the fuck it, they are the Usain Bolt of what yes. they do for a job. Don't, They're tough. Does, doesn't matter which lens, like, if they worked for, you know, a gigantic kind of red-bannered media organization or they worked for someone else, the skill set of what they do mm. is unbelievable. The way that yes. each of them can slow-mo just dis- dis- like take apart a response and put together something else and then bang, like hold power to account. And they both can't. They're both like, nope, I've got to move away from that. Yep. It's a tr- it's such a sad thing for all of us because we no longer yeah. get that kind of interrogation at that level. and um. Yeah, I I would like to say that there's gonna be more stuff done around that, but I don't know, man. Like we gotta have news. We can't not
3: have news. We need news. And it's more actually it's more important than ever that we have we have accurate news. Yeah. That we have news that people can trust. And that young people especially I, I get really worried about where young people are getting their news from. Uh, well, it's got two words and it's got a lot of T's and not a lot of other vowels.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right.
1: <laughs> There's a couple of K sounds I'm in there. I'm not on it. <laughs>
0: There's a couple of K sounds in there and, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter whatever you say, if it's right or wrong, if, if 50,000 other people have seen it, then as far as everyone else is concerned, yes. Um, yeah, okay. The validation of the volume is a really interesting thing that we're dealing with in our community now. You know, and, you know, that we have as we speak, by the time we put this out, that'll probably be even more so. Like the ability to have a point of view robustly supported at scale because you can use, uh, large language models to produce just gigatons of content, um, mm. which will then game the certification search engines and the algorithms of this is how much volume is coming in about this particular point of view. So therefore this must be what's happening. It isn't. Um, mm. but that's a real risk that we face moving forward, you know, uh, as far as holding on to, uh, you know, objective view of reality. And as someone who's lost that from time to time, that's terrifying for me. Yeah. It's pretty scary, Dean. Totally. I agree. Um, I agree. You, uh, you, you write at, you know, at, and great, very generously, you write about what happened to you when you were in, in the Middle East, because you write v- really beautifully um, about a thing called a moral injury and it's not dissimilar from PTSD, but it is not the same thing. I'd love it if we could just kind of talk a bit about a moral injury, and then in that context, kind of, if you wouldn't mind taking us through what happened to you.
3: Sure. Yeah, look, thanks for bringing up moral injury, Osher. It's, and and this is the thing that that people are really finding fascinating about my experiences in the book. It, it's really grabbing people's attention and I'm really pleased about that. You know, moral injury is, is it's when someone's sense of, of what's right has been violated strongly enough, they can suffer what's called a moral injury. And as you say, it's, it's similar to PTSD, has a lot of the similar symptoms uh, and similar psychological ramifications. As well, such as in um, suicide. A lot of the intrusive symptoms, the the depression, the self loathing. Uh, in particular, moral injury, its signature symptoms are guilt and shame, which makes sense, right? Because if you have mm. if if something has happened to you or you've done something that is on a moral dimension, guilt and shame are going to figure prominently. Whereas PTSD is often seen more as a a fear or a life threat condition. Mm. Moral injury is more something where an action has occurred that you have committed or someone has committed against you or you've witnessed something that you feel is just morally wrong. And so, I guess in the case of myself, I was the bureau chief for Reuters in Baghdad in 2007 when two of my staff were killed. In a uh, in an attack by a U.S. gunship on July twelfth, two thousand and seven, uh, in an attack that that was made famous when Julian Assange released footage of this uh, a few years later, that showed this this horrible incident where about a dozen people were killed, in, including my photographer and a driver, and he called that he called that tape collateral murder, and it's it's essentially become uh, the most controversial footage in the history of war. For me, the moral injury was that I failed to protect my staff, and then when that tape came out, I failed to speak up and tell the story of what happened on that day. I, I didn't realise I was traumatised by this at the time, and I couldn't speak. I could literally not speak, but I didn't at the time, and and I didn't I didn't try to. Force Reuters to call for an independent investigation into what happened. And as a result, what happened was that no one challenged, apart from WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, no one really challenged the US military uh, line on how, how my staff were killed. That was another aspect of my moral injury. Now, people will say it's war, you, it's the fog of war, these things happen. But here's the thing about moral injury people need to be given. Room to to be able to judge their actions based on what happened, and to be able to, you know, what you you should have done, you know, what you could have done, and that's why that's one of the things I like about moral injury is because it does allow people that opportunity to be able to assess themselves and say, "I didn't live up to the standards I set for myself." Mm. Because that's the other the
0: other part of moral injury is the. The, uh, you've written it's the betrayal of what's right by yes. someone who holds authority, in a, in a high-stakes situation, um, is it is it okay if, with you if we talk a little bit about the footage? Because I
3: yeah, no, uh, absolutely. You, God, I've, c- I've spoken about this a lot. Okay, I'm yeah, just no, really I'm, I, just, I fine. wouldn't want to yeah. you know, kind
0: of go back on. No worries. Right. So I'm just asking. And if there's anything we speak about that you go, yeah, oh, sure. I, don't, I don't want that in. You just tell me straight away. Yeah, you know what? Is It's here is it here? Is it in my? Yeah. So every every time I pick this up, this is my Canon yep. seventy to two hundred millimeter lens. Every single time, I it's
3: very similar to what Namir had that it, day when he when he was exactly. uh, yeah.
0: This is he had. I think he it was almost this,
3: the same. It is. It is. It's, is it is. Really slung, okay. Slung over his shoulder, and it's yep. a, it's
0: so it has no lens cap on it, so mm-hmm. it appears like it's a big black kind of hole. Yeah. Right? And you hear the chopper pilot scream RPG, and that's it. Yep. And I knew it was a fucking camera. I can see it. I can see the outline. And there's another part of that footage which is just, it's afterwards, it's when the white van shows up. Yeah. And you can hear one of the guys on the radio saying, you shouldn't bring a fucking kid to a war zone. Yeah. And then they hit go. And I just, you know, it's, I, I, don't, I've, I, I don't like to think about it often, and I'm sure you don't. Or either but just even to speak about it right now it's just like I cannot fucking imagine you know what it would be to have that happen to people I worked with but then to see that and hear the callousness of the tones of voice mm. and the complete dehumanisation of the people on the ground and then when the footage comes out it's like bro here's some pretty strong like someone's fucked up and it wasn't the guy standing there and then what happens like Like the betrayal, as you wrote, the betrayal of what's Mm. right is so evident.
3: Yeah, that that attack on the van was a a war crime. Uh, You know, international legal experts from around the world were were very clear that that was a war crime. And I think this is what upsets me about, really upsets me about Julian Assange, and and his continued incarceration, is that he showed what the war in Iraq really looked like. His actions, his bravery in, in putting this publishing this tape, knowing full well what was going to happen, he has kept the names of my staff alive forever hmm. and shown the world what the war in Iraq really looked like and, and that war crimes were committed. And yet no one was ever charged over that attack. No one was ever held accountable. And yet it's Julian Assange, who is the one paying the price right now, still for his bravery in in uh, publishing that tape. You brought
0: up in Australia, you kind of live in this world here at least where, you know, there's authority figures and for the most part, you know, Queensland police in the 80s aside, they're mostly trustable. Um, <laughs> yes. And you kind of have this structure of, you know, as you grow up to be an adult, you're like, all well, humans are human and there's going to be corruption and there's going to be poor choices in many systems and that's a factor of giant systems is that they have a flaw and that there's, there's people in them <laughs> and people are flawed. You try to put checks and safeguards in there in the forms, as we have, of law and retribution, or retribution, uh, consequence uh, for, you know, stuff. But to have this gigantic authority such as the U.S., just a you were you know you were in the Middle East, you you're bureau chief, you're seeing what's happening to the country, you're seeing the reason why they went in versus what was actually going on you know it wouldn't have happened overnight when what were your first kind of signs that you know that there was a, was there a fracturing of of how you know you kind of saw the world what was the f- kind of moments where things started to fall to bits
3: It's a good question, osha it's a really good question you know I think for me. One of the things about covering the war in Iraq was you're so damn busy. Uh, I mean, the, the violence was off the charts. Uh, suicide bombs every day. Yeah. Uh, just, <laughs> it, 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 just, it made the war in Syria look like a, a picnic. And I know that sounds terrible to say, but it, it really was horrendous. And so we were just sometimes trying to just keep up with the story. But I think when I got back to us, Os- when when I left Iraq at the end of two thousand and eight, I was then transferred to Singapore, uh, the Reuters Asia headquarters, and it was literally I think when the tape was released in two thousand and ten, and I realised then that the military had basically fucked us uh, by not giving us the tape. You know, Reuters lawyers had been uh, seeking that tape for a few years. I think I just realized then that everything that um, (laughs) the US military had told us and said to us was a complete lie. And I don't know, maybe it was a bit of naivety on my part to even think that that it would have been anything otherwise. But uh, there was still a part of me that was uh, maybe held on to this idea that when people are killed... People will do the right thing, and that never happened. So that was the lifting of the veil, if you like, when that tape came out, and uh, everything changed for me. Yeah. So I'm imagining
0: the rope stopped being so. You know, there starts to get a fair bit of slack in the rope, and you know, as as you go as far as your connection to you know, you know how things have been working in, in the world, and the world work starts to starts to slack off. Were you finding? That you were trying to, you know, trying to reconnect. Were you, were you, you know, people can drink or use as a way to try to get back on, t- on track?
3: Yeah, I was never much of a drinker, to be honest. Um, it was more uh, work. Work yeah. was one of my escapes. Yeah, for I mean, sure. here's the and here's the strange thing: I was getting the top performance rating every year, <laughs> even though I was getting deeper and deeper into PTSD. Yeah, right. Without, without sort of realizing it, I... You know, I I was running uh, the top stories for Reuters in Asia, and I'd be I'd be gone before my family. I'd, I, I would have left home in Singapore before my family were even awake,
0: mm.
3: and then I'd be doing news meetings at night. And yet I'd have to wear I would have to wear earmuffs if there were if there were thunderstorms because of the noise. That you know the noise, my noise sensitivity was off the charts. Oh wow! Right, this was already this was the signs were already there. This is before we even moved back to Australia ten years ago. The signs were already there, but yet I could do my job really, really well. It's a problem. Like, high functioning is a high, f- is, is, yeah, is too,
0: <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of a two handed thing, you know? You know, I was lucky. I, similarly, I was able to kind of keep going because, to be honest, like the focus of the work was something that was actually quite important to help me, help me go forward. But then it's also, it was like, well, you can't be that bad showing up here. You know, well, in my brain, whatever. Um, did your, you know, you mentioned with your family and you're, I'm assuming they're a bit more little than they are now. Yeah. Uh, um, did that, usually that's a bit of a sign, you know, when, um, you know, you, your partner usually says, hey, buddy,
3: we, was there denial? Was there um, friction? Massive denial. And, and here's the thing, so my wife, Mary, she is a former journalist. So she was a journalist for 20 years. Uh, started out at the ABC down in Hobart, uh, worked for Reuters Television in in Asia yeah. for a number of years. She worked with cameramen who have PTSD, so she knew she knew the signs, uh, and she tried to convince me that I had a problem uh, for a long time but I, I just refused to believe that anything was wrong. And part of it was because I could still do my job. I think that was part of it. The other part of it was that after what I'd gone through, what I'd gone through in my work, I thought I'm, I'm indestructible. And the third part of it was toxic masculinity, right? I just thought, you know, I, I, I love my wife and I admire her immensely. She's been an inspiration to me, but I thought, When it comes to my mental health, no, you're not, you're wrong about that. And I just didn't listen. And that stopped me from getting help years, for years. I I could have gotten help so much earlier if I'd have listened to Mary. And it was only when I was literally, one one day in early 2016, she just said, she said, she begged me to get help because by then I, I was just really. It, I was impossible to be around. I had all the PTSD signs, the noise sensitivity, the agitation, the depression. Some some mornings I couldn't get out of bed. The kids then didn't know. They were aged, you know, 13, 14, 15. They just were utterly confused and worried. And, um, wow. And I got diagnosed in 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> That's the thing a lot of people may, you know, not talk about mental health. When they talk about mental health, they may not understand that. And, you know, I'm sure you've worked real hard on it since, but for every one person that is dealing with a mental health issue, there's five people essentially that are also affected.
3: Yeah, it's, it's like a cluster bomb. That's how I describe it. It's like a cluster bomb going off in a house. Everyone is affected. And this is why when I give talks and speak to people, I say, and especially to men, You've got to listen to your loved ones. If they say that something's not quite right, you've got to listen. And it's no great um, burden to go and see a professional. I, I'm, okay, it is, there's waiting lists and all that sort of shit. I'm fully aware of how difficult it is these days to get help. But sometimes just acknowledging that you might have an issue is a start. Uh, it is. And
0: as I like to say, like there's one thing to know where the fire escape in the hotel room is (laughs) and you're never going to know it if you don't watch the, look at the little, you know, thing on the back of your door. But, you know, it's another thing altogether to know what fire is. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Totally.
3: Totally. How
0: am I not like, I don't understand why I'm suddenly not able to breathe very well and I'm getting very hot. What's going on? (laughs) You know, you kind of, you know, it's, it's one thing to know that it's a problem but yeah. you it's you to to understand that it's not going to go away and it's certainly not going to get better in fact odds on it's going to get way worse and take down way more people than just you uh, badly if you don't sort it out it's the real trick because the safe thing to do is to go to ground the safe thing to do is to try to you know retreat
3: you know yeah
0: and it's really it's really really tough man it's so well you've mentioned camera before i've i 've worked with a chemo who's, who's done some pretty gnarly pretty gnarly stuff filming in southeast asia in the um in the eighties and nineties and you know i know I know that you know art chair is one of the places that mm. you've, uh you 've done work around and boy you know it's one thing to think about why he 's going in and out of there but it 's another thing about people who live there that's oh, their yeah. home. That's the, yeah, yeah. they can't they can't come back yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have a Medicare card. <laughs>
3: yeah, totally. I mean, I know some journalists. So in my in my book, I write about a BBC correspondent who, for her, one of the worst things was actually getting treatment for her trauma, knowing that the population of Iraq was traumatised and that they would never get treatment. It's, being a journalist carries a lot of baggage, offshore. Man, sorry, sorry. You
0: just watched me. Sorry, um, I, uh, I I I like scuba diving, and I've had the bends, and I found myself in the emergency ward at Denpasar Hospital. In, oh, really? Uh, yeah. And when was this? Uh, twenty fifteen. Okay, and. Uh, the brown wing built by Japan, and yep. I sat. I sat there, and it was fucking packed. Like oh, there was maybe six beds, and there might have been forty-eight people in there. All right, and I sat there. I was one. Of the, I was on a work trip, and one of the people I was working with was next to me. And um, I watched two people die in front of me in the space of ten minutes. Wow! Because uh, they, sh- you know, there's no fucking medical system. They just, they show up when people yeah. are like. They're doing the breathing, right? The, if you've heard someone towards the end of life, they do this breath. And so these two, yeah, they were, you know, opening the curtains, going to get a bag, coming back. And my phone rang and it was the um, local, either lo- I think it was a local fixer. No, no, no. It was a fixer back in uh, Sydney going, what the fuck are you doing there? Like, here's the number. Blah, 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 blah. I made a phone call. We got in a taxi three and a half kilometers north from us. Mate, I am by myself in this gigantic room with a, you know, beautiful kind of, uh, I think she was German, nurse, yep. um, giving me oxygen treatment, like, spick and span, completely pristine room, and I'm lying there getting this five-star hotel yep. treatment. Going. Was it the
3: SOS clinic?
0: I can't remember. It was blue. Yeah. I'm thinking, this is fucking fucked. Yeah. There's people buying 3,000 yeah. 3, meters from me, and I'm only yeah. here because my work paid for an insurance thing that gets me here. This is fucking terrible.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> Man, I get so I get that. That's what, Sorry, there that was a long story to explain why my head bowed when you talked about your. No, poly. and
3: and look, this is these is one of this is part of the moral dimension. Yeah, of the work that journalists do is telling telling the stories of people in these countries and going through these sorts of events and then being able to then look after themselves in a way where they don't actually feel guilty about it. Yeah. Right. Realizing that <laughs> if you want to do your job, you've actually got to look after yourself because if you don't, you're not going to be able to do your job and then you're no use to anyone. Is this the kind of stuff you talk to journalism students about? Yes. And and journalists and journalists. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's about... Uh, you know, people say to me, what did you do? What what would you have done differently in my career? And I say, I probably wouldn't have gone from Jerusalem to Baghdad. That was probably a mistake. <laughs> That's a
0: tricky stamp on your passport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: But seriously, going from Jerusalem to Baghdad probably wasn't a good idea. But the story was just, uh, I mean, there was so much happening. in The 2000s and geez, it was just all happening. So I wanted to be there. But yeah. From a, and then maybe after Baghdad, I should have taken six months off. I took six weeks off. Every yeah, right. mistake. These are the sorts of things I talk about. I think journalists can, can cover these sorts of stories, these sorts of events for their entire lives if they look after themselves. You're going to get traumatized. It's going to happen. But if you look after yourself and you have the support of your bosses, which is always a big factor, then you can, you can do it for as long as you want to. But broken journalists don't write good stories. They don't produce good shows. It's just not possible.
0: Right. And that's ultimately a a, a factor. I'm I'm sure, you know, as the business of selling the news, it's not Mm. telling the news anymore, sadly. As the business of selling the news gets, you know, more and more tricky, you're going to – quality is the thing that you're
3: going to – Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it in so many journals who just can't, they can't, they can't do their job the way they used to because they are mentally impaired. You know, you've, you've had some pretty high stakes gigs, man.
0: Uh, when you when you stride in the front door as Bureau Chief in, um, in Baghdad, like, you know, I, I often like to think about that. We always get, I think it's called the, it's not the Peter Principle, it's something else. We, Our next job is just a beyond our coping strategies <laughs> that have got us where we are, but we kind of figure out, mm-hmm. figure it out. You know, we got to where we got to and we, you know, we then push the next bit and go, whoa, and the day-to-day is now what we used to s- floor you for a week. How quickly did you realise that, oh, boy, this is a different speed? Two things.
3: So I, I, I came from Jerusalem, right? So I was already
0: What working. year, Jerusalem?
3: 2006. The war oh, Lebanon. right. So it's
0: all on, man. So that like, was, yeah, so yeah, that was pretty happened. hectic.
3: Yeah. But then- going into Baghdad was a whole different scenario. The country was in civil war, yeah. basically. There were 150,000 American troops there, hunkering down in their bases, really not being able to do anything, not trying to do anything. Uh, the US at the time just didn't, was just uh, clueless. As to what to do, they'd yet to implement this thing called the surge, right? They hadn't decided. They hadn't yet had this last roll of the dice. Forgive so, me, to, Dean. Would you would you describe <laughs> it as a quagmire? Sorry, I fucking have to.
0: Oh no, it it's was like, it
3: was a quagmire. This was, it was Vietnam, like that Cheney, Mark. II. that
0: Footage of Cheney. That footage of yeah. Cheney going, "Don't do it." It's a fucking quagmire. This was Vietnam then, like, in the
3: desert, and I'll debate anyone who wants to argue otherwise. But but so I arrive in Baghdad, start of two thousand and seven. And these security guys pick me up. They're ex-Royal Ulster Constabulary, Irish guys, right? Ex-Royal Marines. These guys have seen everything. Yeah. And they tell me, right, they tell me the road to to the office into central Baghdad has gotten worse, more dangerous since I was there last time, which was in 2004. And they say to me, look, if we get immobilized or whatever, one of us will just carjack another car and do whatever we have to and get you to the office, that's what we'll do, and I'm like, uh, okay, and and so that was the first thing. My what I'd gone into that bureau. My first directive from the editor in chief of Reuters was to draw up a contingency plan to evacuate the entire bureau. We were worried about getting overrun by 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 insurgents. <laughs> Mate, when I first started in radio, when I first started
0: in radio, my early program directors would say to me. Before you open the mic, before you start a talk break, know how you're getting out before you're getting in. And for me, that was always like it's what I tell anyone about being on TV is like just know what you're throwing to,
3: know how you're getting out. And you just described like, well, I guess that goes to a pretty solid conclusion, doesn't it? It was a reality check. And but the yeah. thing was, they didn't actually they didn't tell me this until after I'd gotten the job. <laughs> i <laughs> so I already accepted the job. And then they said, by the way, can you draw up a contingency plan to evacuate the Bureau and cover the yeah. story from Amman and Dubai and oh. Iraqi Kurdistan? And I'm like, what the fuck have I got myself into? I'm never going to be, be the
0: Bureau Chief. And most, most people listening are never going to be a Bureau Chief, certainly not in a war zone. But all of us will have a moment where we go, look, if it gets to that point, we're going to no longer do this thing that we've committed to. What did you do? Like part of this plan would have been a couple of trigger points. Like if this yeah, starts that's to right. happen, we'll yeah. pack our bags and get them mm. on the ground and get ready to go. And if a couple of days later the power goes out, well, then we're going to have, you know, mm. what for you, like when you're putting those kind of things together, those, those trigger points where you go, and uh, there's no coming back from here. If this happens, we're out.
3: Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, uh, any, any word, any suspicion that our compound was going to get raided. That was the trigger point. And when I say compound, we were in the red zone. So we weren't in the green zone, the sort of supposedly safe and secure part where the American embassy was and the military headquarters. We had a a compound, a walled, blast walled compound with the New York Times, the Associated Press, and the BBC near the Tigris River. And we're all in there together, all surrounded by blast walls and stuff. We had Iraqi guards at one end of the street with AK-47s at another end of the street. And the French embassy was also in our compound and they had special forces in there. So we sort of knew that we had a relatively – but we never knew if the French would ever come to our aid, you know, because the French are the French, right? Yeah, and And they've also got their own people to look after. Yeah, that's right. So the view was – and if there was a raid, we're going – If if there was, we're going, and if we got word that there was going to be a raid, we're out of there. Yeah, that was that was going to be the trigger point. My goodness, because they did the insurgents weren't taking prisoners; (laughs) they were just killing people, and and, uh, it was it was was, they were just massacring people, especially foreigners. Um, Jesus, man, like, (sighs) is there laughter?
0: Oh, yeah, 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 joy.
3: Well, you know, we used to, what we try and do is, uh, I mean, we, we actually, we had about a hundred people, ac- Reuters employed about a hundred people across Iraq. We were the biggest, basically the biggest foreign media organization there. When it was quiet, which wasn't often, um, we'd gather in the yard. We had a nice big yard. And if the generator was mercifully off, like if power was actually on, we'd sit around and, and, and drink beers. I mean, most of the, I mean, Muslim country, but most of the, most of the guys drank. Um, yeah. And uh, there was a, a tradition in Baghdad of uh, cooking fish in the ground. So, a couple of the guys would dig a hole in the ground and they'd stick fish in the ground and it like it with some charcoal and heat it that way and cover up with with uh, foil and stuff. And we'd sit around and talk and and whatnot. But you know, every single member of that bureau had lost a loved one to yeah. the war, friends. You know, I'd have someone come into my office and say, oh, my brother in laws just been kidnapped by insurgents. Can you help with ransom money? You, you know, that sort of thing. It was just happening all the time. By the time the war, by the time the US left Iraq in 2011, Reuters had lost 10 people, Jesus. either directly or indirectly as a result of
0: the war. And, you know, people may, may be aware, but they may not be aware. Like,
3: you know, journalism generally, like the Red Cross, it's a big no-no. Jo- journalists have increasingly been targeted in war zones, but Iraq changed that equation in a way that journalists had never been targeted before. Journalists were sought out, sought out in Iraq, and seen as as ideal targets, seen as uh, ideal kidnapping targets. I mean, yeah. put it this way: <laughs> we had these. We had all these these big blue flak jackets with press written across them. Don't wear them. (laughs) Seriously. Because you're putting a target on you if you do. Wow. So while all the the foreign media organizations had shipped in all these big blue flak jackets with press, everyone wore these little black ones that you could fit under your T-shirt. At one point, uh, it just got too dangerous for a lot of foreigners to even – Go out on the streets, I mean some some very courageous photographers did and and still were taking pictures, but oh my goodness, it was dangerous and the thing for me was you know with my PTSD, what what really did it for me was fear yeah and, and I only discovered this a few years ago because after all the therapy I went through and all the thinking about my trauma, but I realized only a few years ago that the reason for my noise sensitivity was fear of being kidnapped. Oh, my god. That gosh. fear yeah. of being kidnapped. For yeah. all, you know, 700, 700 days and nights I spent in Iraq, it was always that fear of getting kidnapped. We all felt it. Yeah. Because if you did, you're going to end up dead. Mm-hmm. And the biggest, the worst nightmare that I used to have was insurgents chasing me in my sleep through the streets of Baghdad, and I didn't know how to get back to the office. Oh, man, these things are kind of following you, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I don't have these nightmares much anymore. Very rarely, in it. fact. Uh, but that's because I actually, I went through a process. When I realized that I had this fear, this fear was locked in my body. When I realized that this fear was locked in my body, and I didn't understand it. But I, once I did, then I went through a uh, a process of EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing to deal with that fear. And I remember speaking to my psychologist in Launceston and I said, and, and you know, I'm sure some everyone a lot of people have heard of EMDR. You know, it became famous because Prince Harry used it and and so on. And Oh man, fuck
0: Prince Harry. I was I was doing EMDR in ninety four, <laughs> ninety three. Were well, you on, really man.
3: Yeah Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah, I got really I got really lucky. I got picked up by the state mental health system.
3: That is amazing. Yeah, I got, I got really lucky. In an you, must have been one, you must have been one of the first people in Australia. <laughs> well, there you go. Who, yeah. Yeah, wow. In an, in an, outpatient,
0: uh, in an outpatient psych uh, facility in, in did Brisbane. Did it work for you? Uh, I don't, I can't remember. Maybe, I guess. I, I got a lot better quite quickly. Yeah, right. I well, guess that, it did.
3: That's yeah. the thing. That is the thing, right? So- so the way it worked for me was, you know, the, the psych- my psychologist said, let's, let's, let's go to some moments where you really were afraid. And yeah. so she got me to describe some situations where I thought I might have gotten killed. And yeah. we went through those and using the EMDR allowed me to process those moments and then for me to understand fully, completely that I was safe. And so those memories of when I thought I was going to be killed are now properly filed memories yeah. in my brain, in my head, in my hippocampus, wherever you want to refer to it, Yeah, I don't have that fear anymore. It's, it's really quite remarkable.
0: I don't think I'm – unless the technique's changed, you sit in your chair basically next to the other person, but one chair's facing one wall, one chair's facing the wall behind you. And my therapist, she had her hand in front of my face. She had two fingers, and she was just like – literally just waving her hand in front of my eyes, and she just asked me to follow her fingers mm-hmm. with my eyes while we talked. And there's some wild stuff that our brains do because of our eye movement. Mm-hmm. So people, here's the, th- here's the funny it. thing, Osha.
3: but people don't know why it works. They it's actually like bananas, still right? don't know why it works. But it's here's incredible. what it does. Here's what it does. When the fingers, when the therapist's fingers move in front of your eyes- what that does is it just puts enough, it puts enough, a um, little bit of stress, a little bit of strain on your working memory so that your amygdala doesn't go bananas when mm. you relive that event, when you, talk, not relive, when you talk about that event, okay? So you're following, and actually the therapist's fingers move faster than you think. So I remember yeah. when I'm just, I'm thinking, she's moving her fingers faster. I remember that. Now, just, I
0: haven't talked about it since it happened, but I'm yeah. remembering, I'm remembering and I'm, that. And yeah. I'm
3: having to follow these bloody fingers and then talk about this event where I thought this US soldier was going to shoot me, right? Yeah. And then I'm describing what happened. And then the, and my psychologist is saying, okay, what sort of situation was this like? And I said, it was the sort of thing that could happen to any journalist. It was a close call. And then she says, okay, it was a close call. So look at my fingers and lock that in. And so I'm saying to myself, to her, okay, it was a close call. And then we got to the safe part. You're safe now. Fingers again, mm. lock that in. And after I did that, she said, now try to recall that image. And I'm thinking, why would I want to do it? I've been trying to forget that damn image. Yeah. But then when I did try to recall it, it was less clear. It was gone was this high resolution image of 10 yeah. minutes ago. It honestly was less Clear. It was. It was like it had already been. It had already been filed into my filing cabinet of my mind. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't going through your like your immediate kind of uh,
0: what's it's called a fusion response, essentially, where you're 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 reliving the physical.
3: I wasn't reliving at the no, moment. I, and, no, and that's amazing. And on a scale of you know, my whole breathing had slowed, and and yeah, and it was just, and I was a bit skeptical that this would work for me. Yeah. Right. But okay. it did, and then the, two weeks later, we did another another scenario where I thought I might get shot as well. Yeah, worked again.
0: <sighs> that's 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 extraordinary. That is a lovely interaction with uh, you know a healthcare, a mental health worker. Though you have been to the you've been at the top of the mountain, mate. You've been to have well, been I've, on a I've, cycle. I've really
3: <laughs> looked, and and this is the other thing I think, Osher is that it is hard out there to find people who can help you, right, or guide yeah. you. And especially now, and I, I feel really, I've been lucky. I mean, I got lucky in the psych ward. 2016, I found, I was put with a psychiatrist, born in Iran, knew my world, understood my world, wow. and wanted to take this journey with me.
0: Yeah, wow. You know,
3: yeah. Ah, how lucky can you get? I've also fired psychologists, basically. Oh, mate, me too. That, that, that yeah. don't work for me. That's right. <laughs> so... I think the important message is there for people, you've got to find the person that works for you and keep looking until you do because in some cases it might be a lifelong relationship that you have. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And life-saving uh, potentially. Oh, my God.
0: Someone asked me about that the other day. So what's the greatest investment you've ever made? I'm like, every single dollar I spent yes. on mental health treatment. <laughs> yep.
3: No, <laughs> every, no regrets. I, there,
0: there was a point uh, when I was, fuck, so crazy that I was like, take everything all of my super every everything i don't want one material thing take everything just so i don't feel like this yeah and i couldn't it was yeah i just did money nothing mattered nothing mattered just taking a moment away from dean yates just a moment to say hey if you feel like voting in the logies The links in the show notes, and I'll leave you to it. Make sure you send me an email what you're looking at right now. Just do it. Pick up your phone, take a photo, send it. email at gmail.com. Do it well. Listen to these ads. Hold up.
2: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. dot com.
0: We're here talking, and it's 2023, and you have just written a, you've written a book, and you are comfortable saying yes. I've spent time in a psych ward. I've spent time in a mm-hmm. psychiatric facility. This would like, who's ever going to get fucking employed? Saying that out loud when I started my career,
3: sure, oh um, yeah,
0: that we're in a situation now that we're in a work environment now where it's kind of seen as, I oh, don't know, it's like ICU but for your brain, and mm-hmm. they're better now. Um, for people who you know have
3: what been, maybe are wondering, like what what's it like in a psych ward? It's a great question, and it can de- it depends. Yeah, you know, which I, I know people hate that answer. It depends. But it yeah, really obviously it depends it, on where you are. Like, it really, there's
0: some five star ones here, which yeah. are amazing. And then there's the kind of ones that I used to go to as an outpatient in Brisbane, which smell like B.O. and cigarettes.
3: You know, um, you've got, both you've have got, great doctors. <laughs> you've got the crisis psych wards in public hospitals, which are yeah. not great, right? But that's what they're there for when people are in crisis. Yeah. So, the psych ward I was at, Ward 17, Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital in Melbourne, run by Austin Health, is, I think, one of the best. PTSD facilities in the world. And I say that because I've spoken to people who get who have been treated in other specialist PTSD facilities around the world. You got 20 patients, 20 beds, private rooms, absolutely quiet. You could hear a pin drop. So you go in there, right, with PTSD, you're in a very peaceful, quiet environment. Yeah, You've got psychiatrists who understand trauma. You've got psychologists. You've got social workers, spiritual care workers, dieticians. Next door, you've got a veterans complex with a hydrotherapy pool. And you've got fellow uh, PTSD survivors in there from all walks of life, veterans, coppers, ambos. I met a chef, a teacher, a truck driver when yeah. I was in there. Who and and everyone shares their stories. You're all in it together. It doesn't matter what you hey, did. A sec.
0: Come on in. Hello?
3: Come on in. <laughs> Sorry, we're getting a visit. That's all right.
0: Are you coming in? Just wants a huggle. That's me. all right. Come yeah, and say hey. Quick huddle. Come on in, mate. Come on in.
3: This is Dean. He's in Tasmania. I'm in Tasmania. Do you know where Tasmania is? Yeah. Have you got an yeah. ostrich on your shirt? Uh, oh, I Think right. again. What's another long neck bird? Starts with E.
1: We go to um the jungle and there was there was one big emu wow. and we feeded it.
0: Did you? Oh, we that's fantastic! It. I'm gonna have to go, buddy, because I've got to keep talking Dad's with Dean talking here.
1: Down. Um, Dad, I have yeah? to tell you, I have to tell Dean something.
0: Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. What have you got? And don't forget, be write it down. Four. <gasps> it down. No way. He's a journalist. He won't forget
3: those things. <laughs> I've already written it down.
1: Um, okay, say goodbye. <laughs> and I'm going to be bigger than you. He
3: oh, is. okay. Say <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Love <laughs> you. Thanks for coming. Bye. This,
2: Sorry.
0: That's Bye, totally fine. Can I bring
2: this? It's
0: yours, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Ah, Thanks Bye, Thanks for visiting. Bye, Bye. That's Audrey too. They're only going to be small and cute ones. And, dude, come on in. Have a chat.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every time. No, on. Totally.
0: That's a that's a big part. I'd like to go back and talk about what was going on in the ward and what it was like seeing other people and being. I want to talk about that, but a big part of being sick, and we spoke about this at the beginning. A big part of being sick and being in that space, your brain tricks you into believing it's never going to be different, and yep. that is nothing. That that life won't go on. And I remember my doctor, Doctor Chung, was someone "Goes, mate, life goes on." And I, he was like, he may as well have been explaining how the seven dwarves, uh, you know, work in some sort of mining cooperative and you know what I mean? Like, it's like, man, yeah. it's fairy tales. Like it's important to go, yeah, this is fucking terrible. This is so fucking shit. Yeah. But in 10 years from now, like, and it was 10 years ago, like here I, here I am, I got, you know, you know I'm married, it's kids. Yep. And it's important to, to, but my brain was sick. I couldn't believe it.
3: Oh yeah, totally. Oh sure. And, and the reason I went to the psych ward the first time was because I was suicidal. Oh, right. Man. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you went. Uh and Oof. and I remember saying to Mary, my wife, when I, I actually told her I was feeling suicidal. And that was a that was a good thing. Smartly smart man. Yep. And I and she said, You need to be hospitalized in a psych yep. ward. And soon and I said, But what will the kids think about me going to a psych ward? See, this is this again, it's this stigma, right? Yeah. This is twenty sixteen. And um I was lucky. My best mate had flown down from Singapore. We're in Tasmania. He'd flown down from Singapore to support me. He'd been here for a couple of weeks. And he said, mate, it will help them if they see you getting treatment. It's so, not wrong. And it yeah. obviously did help them. Yeah. And the next day and the day after that, I, I didn't just all of a sudden feel better, of course. But I just felt, knowing that I was going to the psych ward, I just felt this, a bit of a, a, bit of a foundation underneath me it sort of stopped the plunge that i was yeah. on because i thought at least i go to this psych ward and i might get some answers because i had no idea what was happening to me i oh, had there. no idea and i thought yeah. i might get some answers and my brain was just so confused and muddled <laughs> um and i i the it was an amazing experience i learned so much there the staff were amazing so it was not a lockdown facility you could sign out you go go for a walk whatever yeah. you go out there's for very four few hours. of them
0: there's very few that's right facilities. so you don't yeah uh, people who are forensically needing to be in those kind of hospitals is, is yeah. a couple hundred at best in a population of 25 million that's yeah. pretty amazing
3: and you know i i just think it's something that i i'm really i talk about very openly and frequently because i think it's it's something that people should use that opportunity to go if they if they can, and here's the problem, right? For a lot of private psych wards, you need private friggin' health insurance, yeah, and that yeah. is where it becomes a problem for a, more yeah. than half this half the population.
0: Yeah, when you're in there, you mentioned you're in there with a um, uh, fireys and coppers and uh, truck driver, uh, uh, teacher, part of. I know this. I'm wondering if it's the same in the recovery community. I've seen people come in um and be like yeah, I'm sitting here. What the fuck? You guys don't know. You don't know what it's like. And you've seen what you've seen. You've had happen to you. What's happened to you? You've been through what you've been through. You've lost people. And you're sitting there with, um, you know, let's. I'm going to make up an occupation. I'll say there's a baker in there. You're like, what, you, what could you fucking want? What, how could you be? No, you don't know how fucking sick I am. At what point, and I'm wondering if this has happened, did you start to hear some similarities and go, oh, oh all right, this is what brains do when we get severely traumatized? Did you start to hear similarities? Did it take a little while?
3: First group session. <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously, first group session. First group session, yeah. because the, the the topic was noise and, and arousal, right? And these, and there was about nine guys in the room, veterans and coppers, and they're talking about the things that set them off, loud uh, shopping centres, train stations, kids, and all the things that that just send them crazy. And I'm thinking. Geez, that's me. <laughs> I'm thinking. Wow. I'm sitting there, and I'm going. These guys are just like me, you know. Got Vietnam veterans in there, veterans of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, there, there was a guy there who'd been a peacekeeper in in Somalia, oh, no. in, in bloody Mogadishu.
0: So, yeah.
3: You know, and and then after after we went through all of that sort of stuff, one of the guys said that for his wife, it was like at home, it was like walking on eggshells, and That was exactly what it was like at home for my family. With me, everyone felt like they were walking on eggshells. And I'm just thinking, I can't believe it. (laughs) This is just so. It didn't matter whether you were journalist, copper, veteran, truck driver. Everyone was exhibiting very similar symptoms. Had the same sort of symptoms. We could all learn from each other.
0: And on on the topic of learning, on the idea of learning, it could be overwhelming. Like I'm this sick. I can't be with my family. Uh, I'm, I'm so sick. I can't see my children or my wife or my friends. I'm in a fucking psych ward. It, I'm this bad. I'm, I've been suicidal. Like that can be overwhelming. Sure. You write you write about finding a path through that by approaching this instead, reframing it and looking at it with curiosity. Yep. Can you talk about what, what does being curious about a situation is as frightening as this? What yeah. does that do for you?
3: And look, it didn't happen overnight. All right, this idea of being curious. I mean, (laughs) I thought I'd go into the psych ward the first time and come out cured. You know, (laughs) I thought I'd come out a new man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as I write this, my psychiatrist had to, she had to break it to me. Dean, you're in crisis. This is the first stage. This is an introduction to treatment as she put it. And I was like, she'd like, it was like she'd hit me with a ton of bricks when she said that. But, over time, I found that if I was to look at a situation where I, especially if I'd had, say, a panic attack, or if something had really set me off, to look back at that with curiosity and say, why did I respond like that? Why did I get really agitated? What was it that did it? And this is when I started to, try to understand how the brain works and how the brain responds mm. to trauma. And this is how I then started to get into the polyvagal theory and, and these sorts of things. And once I started understanding how the bloody brain works and got curious about that, I could see how my body was reacting and how all of this trauma that had sort of I'd absorbed and and so on was now getting Repeat it if you like mm. in the everyday life at home. And how okay, you might not be able to stop the everyday life at home, but you can you can at least you know how to respond to that. Yeah. And I found that approaching it with curiosity as opposed to approaching it with doom and gloom, oh my God, this is never gonna go away. Mm. But without a curious approach, it took a lot of the sting out of the the, the reactions that I was having. Yeah. Like, like, imagine
0: for a second that you don't know what sunburn is, all right? Yeah. And you go on holidays to the Gold Coast, all right, and suddenly after you, oh, I love it, I'm in the water, I'm in the sun, I'm on the sand, I'm building sandcastles, this is brilliant. And that night while you're eating your takeaway pizza or your fish and chips or whatever, you start to blister and you have mm. no idea what it is. You fucking- You'll be fucking terrified. Yes, but you know what it is. You're like your body's yes. having this tremendous reaction. It's so bad, your skin will peel off your body. But you're like, ah, it's painful. Yeah, fuck, it hurts. I know. I know why. Yeah. Ah, okay, I know what to do next time. If you, it's think. If, if we don't know what is going on, it can be over fucking warming. Yeah. First time I had an anxiety attack, I called the ambulance. I thought I was dying. There you go. All right? I was eighteen. I was just high.
3: But, um, <laughs> um, you probably got an earful from the ambos, did you? It's true. No, they were actually quite loud. <laughs>
0: uh, but it is—it is in that education. It is that figuring yeah. things out and understanding. You know what does an amygdala hijack feel yep. like, and uh, being having that self—it's very hard to be self-aware, particularly if it grabs you before you have a chance to look at it. Sure. What are some things that you look out for? For me, I, I, I look for the feeling of my body changing. I look for the flood. I look for the feeling of the flood. I look for—it's kind of like a tingle in my uh, in the back of my jaw, yeah. and you know, around the back of my eyes when I get that adrenaline spike. That's when I know,
3: like, ah, uh, probably shouldn't say whatever comes up. I might just breathe a bit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, for me it's always tightness in the chest. Just that's oh, yeah. that's always been a, a a an absolute message to me that I'm not traveling so well if I start to get a bit tight in the chest or if my breathing gets a bit shallow. Yeah. Uh always a sign. I and I think going back to that education and awareness, and, and here's what I here's what I say to, to folks and my I I stress to people you got to be curious and you got to you got to educate yourself which means you got to read. You can't watch mm. TikTok videos about this shit. No, right. I hate to t- I hate to break it to people, but you've got to read about this stuff. And one of the about one of the only criticisms I had of Ward 17 was that all they had on the bookshelves were airport novels. And mm. and the reasoning was, oh, we don't want to trigger people with stuff on trauma. PTSD war or whatever. And I'm saying, you know, people. Mate, you, the, f- you, f- the fucking crockery was triggering me at one point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not even joking. The fucking crockery was triggering me.
0: It doesn't matter.
3: Exactly. But, and, and look, I mean, I know people consume reading material in different ways. So whether it's audiobooks or ebooks or whatever, but people need to educate themselves about trauma, mental illness, and how to mm. deal with it. So that they can you, you can't have that awareness until you have that education, I don't think yeah uh, so it's important. I'm guessing there was a bit of a
0: swagger in your step when you were you know starting your work in the in Jakarta and then when you were you know rolling around the world being the journal
3: now the New York Times journalists were the ones with the swagger oh, I'll bet <laughs> you know c n
0: n having kids changes you, you know what's happened to you has changed you what what's how do you look at the world differently now? You might have, you know, wanted to get up and chase the danger for a while, which is fine. It's what
3: young men do. Um, how has it changed for you now? Gosh, no one's really asked me that question, uh, Osher. Um, I tell you what's changed is—is is I just see—I I do see a lot of the injustice and, mm-hmm. and and suffering in the world now. I feel it. I can't watch the news much. Yeah, find it very hard to watch the news. I sometimes want to get involved in things that, that are just gonna take me down a rabbit hole that I don't have the bandwidth for. And I get very upset about you know, things like transparency and government accountability and I worry about the, the future of the the, the planet.
0: Yeah oh, mate, fuck like
3: you and me both. Um
0: but you these are both things, these are all things that are, you know, we spoke earlier about moral injury and the betrayal mm. of a, you know a, a position of authority. Like uh, ultimately, we you know I'm fucking powerless when it comes to I can't change what my government mm. does. But yet there's things that I can do in my day that make me feel a little better about it. What are ways that you go through your day that allow you to feel like well I've you know I've taken a little bit of action in some.
3: Way? I, I think you know the this book is the culmination of of that. In a way, it's taken seven years to get this mm. to get this done. You know, when seven years ago, when when Mary was suggesting I write a book, I'm like, oh, no, people don't want to get read another book by another old journo. <laughs> but then uh, during my first psych ward admission, I thought, yes, I can actually make a contribution here. Yeah, because there's a lot of people out there who are struggling and suffering with trauma, but who who
1: can't.
3: Tell their story and I can tell my story and in a way be their voice and at the same time help others. So I I think for me this is this is possibly one of the most important things I've ever done is this book. And I feel that the amount of time it's taken has actually been a good thing. Yeah. I, I really thought that it would be out years ago. And and this has nothing to do with trying to find an agent, trying to find a publisher. I think that the amount of time it's taken has helped a lot of these ideas and thoughts crystallise, yeah. and and just you know sometimes you need time to reflect, don't you? You, you, know, you know what I'm oh, talking absolutely. about because you've you've done a, yeah, yeah. you've done a second edition of your book,
0: uh, which very yeah. <laughs> few
3: people get the opportunity to
0: do. Well and truly, look, I I'm very interested in the space that you are. Uh, in and I, I think what you're doing and what you've done and particularly the lens through with your, your superpower is that people are very familiar with the moment that you're talking about, mm. uh, the footage we spoke of earlier, and that therein is a lens to otherwise speak to and have the attention of people who otherwise would never yes. ever consider the kind of things you're talking about. So that's quite the superpower. Mm. What would you hope people would like to know about those that we care about, those we love, those we yet to know, who have PTSD, or
3: what would you like them people to know about that you know actually I, I think one of my main messages is is the bloody workplace. There is mm. so much trauma in the workplace that is unaddressed, untreated because so many people are afraid to put their hand up and disclose the fact that they are suffering, whether it 's PTSD. Moral injury or some other mental health issue, because they're afraid of losing their job, being seen as weak, missing out on a promotion, or whatever the, the reason might be. And I think, you know, the, the the mental health conversation in Australia has come a long way in in twenty years as a society in general. You know, we we sit around and talk about mental health all the time. The campaigns are completely normalised. No one bats an eyelid if a Beyond Blue. Mm poster gets put out or someone's campaigning for Black Dog Institute it is just it's part of our it, it's part of our national conversation now but it's not in the workplace because mm. there's a lot of lip service and there's a lot of box ticking but until work until staff in all organisations feel comfortable putting their hand up and saying to their boss I need help it's not we haven't reached the point we should be at and that's i think that's what i'm really want to that's what i really want to push for get to that point and i i
0: I agree with you and when i when i talk about this and when people when i go do keynotes and stuff i I often say look you know i have the career i have because the brain that i've got yeah all right i'm lucky because i know that i'm a high value employee and in my industry i'm not alone with this kind of brain yeah, We can gravitate – people with my kind of – my particular kind of dip switches uh, tend to kind of find their ways to these corners of the world. But, you know, we're in a world where we need we need more ideas than ever, right? And making sure that people feel safe enough yep. and are in a healthy enough place to bring all their ideas to work is important. Mm. Because ultimately, it's an economic advantage. Yeah, If everyone is doing their best, yep. they really are. Everyone you're not benefits – yeah, everyone benefits. And it's, you know, just like putting a safety railing.
3: Yeah. Psychological guardrails are the same as safety rails on a factory floor. There you are. And there it is.
0: I love you, man. Uh, you're amazing. If there's anything I can do for you, Dean, don't hesitate to ask, buddy. But thank you so much for writing the book. And thanks for taking the time to speak with me today.
3: No, absolute pleasure, Osha. Thank you.
0: That was Dean Yates. What a guy. What a story.
3: Such a gracious man, and I'm so grateful
0: that he was willing to share that chat. And while you may not be a war correspondent, I'm not a war correspondent. Just the idea that someone could go through something like that and have you know their belief in the world and right and wrong just so completely destroyed, and then and get better, and then be able to experience joy again—that's um, really important for for you to hear. You know, particularly if there's someone in your life who is you know stuck in that space that your brains do to protect us of like it's never going to change because brains do that it can get better and it takes work takes treatment takes commitment to treatment but it can get better and dean's proof of that the book is called line in the sand it's well worth a read it's pretty good yeah it was great to have him on thank you so much for listening thanks for being a part of the show Thank you to all the people that helped me make this show today. Bree Steele on research, Abby Benno on production support, Andy Maher on audio and video post-production. That means he edits it all. And Toehider, also known as Mike Mills, uh, on who Made All The Music. And thank you for listening, because without you, I can't make a show. So thanks for being here. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Thanks for being a part of it. Email me. Send us your email at gmail.com.